Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Harold Bloom, who died last week at the age of 89, was one of our great teachers and literary critics. Often out of sync with contemporary literary fashion, he defended the Western canon and fought against what he called the school of resentment, multiculturalism, and those whom he argued betrayed what he saw as literature's essential purpose. I had the opportunity to know Professor Bloom as a student, and later in life I had the opportunity to interview him most recently in 2000, upon the publication of his book, How to Read and Why. Here is an edited version of that conversation from 19 years ago. Professor Harold Bloom, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, sir. Appreciate having you here. First of all, one of the things that we hear about, I talked about this uh, several months ago, a survey that was done recently of incoming college freshmen talking about why they entered the university, why they were pursuing their education at the university level. And one of the things that predominated in that survey was that students were entering the university so that they could get more money, so that they could get better jobs, the traditional notion of, of, of the humanities, of a liberal arts education, and all the values that come from that seem to have gotten lost. Is, is that your sense of what's been going on from your students? Or do you think that there is still a, a, a very important part of the population out there that, that cares deeply about these issues? Oh, I think uh, there's a kind of balance between the two. My Yale undergraduates, who seem to me as gifted as they ever were, if not more gifted, but who are perhaps less well prepared than they used to be, are, uh, however they are professionally oriented, they are very well aware that there is no necessary conflict between a fundamental education in literature and history and philosophy and the arts and pursuing a uh, a professional career that the two are by no means necessarily opposed to one another. Right. But do they still see the value of, of, of that kind of liberal arts education, of the value of the classics, and the value of, of reading the kind of works that you talk about and how to read and why? Well, I would have to say that a strong minority of them do. I would not be prepared to say that the overwhelming majority of them but my, my book is addressed to, as I say, the solitary reader, which doesn't just mean somebody living in isolation, of course, from other human beings, but someone who reads for herself and himself, who isn't guided by a religious ideology or a political ideology, or, sad to say, this, this new phenomenon that we've had in America for a full generation now, what I suppose has to be called cultural ideology. And yet one of the things, although it is a solitary pursuit, as you talk about, that one of the things that it prepares people for is to be better engaged and to be better social creatures in, in engaging with the rest of the world because of a much broader understanding of, of the human condition. Yes and no. I think that ultimately... Um, that ought to be the case. But what I try to emphasize in the book is that, um, as I say at one point, perhaps a little ironically, um, don't read in order to improve your neighbor or your neighborhood. Don't 
don't try to mix up social activism with the act of solitary reading. Uh, premature uh, engagements into activism have their charm, but they can be premature. I think that the primary function of what I call solitary reading, and by which I always mean reading the best that has been written, encountering the best that has been thought, is to clarify one's own self, strengthen one's own self, perhaps even though this is an enormous thing, to ask literature for, but I don't know where else. One can find it uh, perhaps even to partly heal the self. And certainly by reading the classics and by trying to improve the self, as you say, in, in these ways, it seems so much more valuable than so many of the quick fix, self-help kind of solutions that have become so much a part of, of, of the book world these days. I think that with no irony, I really do think of this book, How to Read and Why, as a kind of transvaluation of the self-help book, a kind of transvaluation of the inspirational book, something that really will do the work of self-help or of what Emerson calls self-trust and self-reliance and also something that does follow Emerson's great adage when he says books are for one thing only, they are to inspire. Talk about this notion, because it is one of the other things that, that you touch on in the book, and I, I think it's a, an important one, of, of self-trust and, and, and why the, the solitary act of reading and reading the great literature contributes to that. You can't, I think, um, trust the self until you have defined the self. You have to learn the self's limits. You can only learn the self's limits through an encounter with otherness, with the idea of other selves, and indeed with other selves. But mixing with other people, though, an essential process quite frequently um, involves you, this is a Proustian insight, by the way, in conversations in which you um, seem to exploit one another. You talk about this notion of, uh, and the need to return to a selfish form of reading. Well, I do think, I remember being blamed many years ago for observing that in a deep sense, that when you learn to read poetry well, you're not really learning how to talk to other people. You're really learning how to talk to yourself. An insight, by the way, not original with me, because basically it's founded upon John Stuart Mill's perception that what we're doing when we read poetry is we're overhearing rather than hearing. That our own sense of ourselves is necessarily getting involved in it. Quite clearly, when you move to the drama or when you move to the novel, then you are much more engaged in social worlds and your relationship to otherness undoubtedly does take on much more inescapable historical overtones than it does when you are necessarily dealing, say, with lyric or meditative poetry. I still would feel, though, that the emphasis so strong on in the universities and in the medias for a full generation now, the belief that everything 
is culturally overdetermined, and that you can't read unless you have a sense as to how both the book you are reading and you yourself as reader have been overdetermined by um, cultural factoring and conditioning. That does seem to me, in the end, um, an emphasis less valuable. It leads to this whole notion of the socially relevant novel, that everything has to have some, some social relevance. Yes, yes. And that uh, I, I talk towards the end of the book about certainly one of the four or five finest American novels of the last half century, Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. Um, I knew Ralph very well. And in all those years after he had written Invisible Man and failed to compose a second major novel, he would sometimes, with ironic bitterness, talk about the misunderstandings of the book by social activists, both white and black, um, by the pressures upon him to um, engage himself more directly as an author in what others took to be the social struggle. Mm-hmm. I think it uh, discouraged and inhibited Ralph and was responsible for the fact that he never could finish Juneteenth. And I must say, having read much of it now, I I think he would not have been happy that posthumously they published it. Mm-hmm. Why is irony so important to reading? Well, how far can you get without it? Um, Hamlet may well be uh, the central and most familiar figure in the history of Western literature, perhaps by now really in the world's literature. Uh, Trying to understand what Hamlet is saying um, without some understanding of irony is virtually impossible. Hamlet almost never says precisely what he means, and he quite frequently does not mean what he says. He, more often than not, in a highly ironic mode, means something quite other than what he's saying, sometimes indeed the very opposite of what he's uh, saying. Um, But this this has produced, of course, um, a very strange... um, series of difficulties now. Um, as Thomas Mann, uh, I think the greatest ironist in modern fiction, is largely neglected in the part of my book that deals with that marvelous novel, The Magic Mountain. I reflect with a little irony of my own that fresh biographies of Mann continually appear and uh, evidently have been written and are reviewed strictly on the basis of his barely repressed homoeroticism, um, completely neglecting uh, complex ways and magnificent ways in which he is a master of irony. In looking at the difference in reading in different forms, particularly the difference in terms of poetry versus the novel, Talk a little bit about what those forms require from the reader that's different. Well, a very profound difference uh, between them, as I try at one point to say in the book. One can conceive of, and there have been, major poets who were able to go on writing with virtually no audience for their poetry. William Blake... Gerard Manley Hopkins, Emily Bronte, overwhelmingly 
Emily Dickinson, there is a um, long tradition of that. In some sense, though poets, of course, welcome an audience, great poets don't necessarily need an audience. Whereas it seems to me inconceivable that, and there are indeed very few instances of posthumously published first novels that are extraordinary achievements. Uh, novels not only presuppose and have to create social worlds, but they, they require readership. They require indeed a kind of interreaction with the readership. I find it rather fascinating to watch the course of the career of Philip Roth, who went through a long phase in which essentially he seemed to believe he was alienating his readership simply because they misunderstood what he was doing. They thought he was satirizing uh, the Jewish condition, and of course he wasn't. And it is, I think, in his best work in Sabbath Theater and American Pastoral, an immense reaching out, um, almost poignant, towards the readership that the books themselves seem to recognize and indeed deeply imply just may not be there anymore. One of the principles that you lay out, and you have a number of, of principles of reading, but one of them is that in order to read well, one must be an inventor. Expand on that. Well, that is Emerson again. You know, uh -huh. I, I do not claim any uh, great originality for myself uh, in this book. It would be the wrong book in which to try to be original. I think my reviewers have missed that and everything else by many miles. Um, Emerson observed that one must be an inventor to read well. And he meant something by that very close to what another great sage of reading, Dr. Samuel Johnson, meant when he said that the essence of poetry is invention. Um, in order to read um, strong, powerful, imaginative literature, classical imaginative literature or its modern equivalents, um, you have to have a mind increasingly made agile as well as receptive because well, Shakespeare, for instance, quite frequently, in spite of the apparent overwhelming richness of his work, is also an astonishingly elliptical and ironical writer. And it is up to you to inventively fill out the ellipses and to um, get to the other side or the other mode of the irony. You talk about reading as being this battle against the clock. I think that's uh, yeah. uh, something that, that we all can relate to. Well, we all get older. Um, we're not going to live, at least not until technology gets very different indeed. We're not going to live 150 or 160 years. Um, we will live a span of uh, whatever it turns out to be. And if we're lucky with good health, let us say 70 to 85 years. Um, 
however you read initially, when you seem to have all the world and all the time, there's going to be, I think finally you begin to get a sense that you are reading against the clock. And I have a profound aversion to reading mediocre work, new mediocre work, old mediocre work, which various, um, shall we say, um, social commissars in and out of the universities right. tell me that I ought to be reading because it will be good for me since it will um, help enhance a literature of their own on the part of this group or that group. Groups by now defined in terms, as we know, of gender, of ethnic origin, indeed increasingly of sexual orientation. I, I am not very persuaded by these admonitions. And is there something to be gained on the part of the newer reader, the university student, for example, by being able to compare that newer work with some of the classics and some of the kind of work that you talk about in, in, in How to Read and Why? Oh, there's everything, everything to be gained. Um, I would think that people who are very much trying to, as they would say, um, keep up with the literature of the moment or the literature that they feel, rightly or wrongly, answers their social needs or their problems of uh, self-identity, would learn a great deal by um, turning from what they are reading or what certain cheerleaders in and out of the universities urge them to be reading. And uh, read Dickens, read Jane Austen, read Shakespeare, read George Eliot, read the Bronte sisters. Um, once they get through some initial difficulties, I would think they would feel that they have um, had their eyes opened to another kingdom, a kingdom that is, after all, within them. Well, we thank you for continuing to try and open our eyes to uh, the great works that are out there. Professor Harold Bloom, his new book, How to Read and Why, it is published by Scribner. I thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, sir.